Welcome back to Koalisha. So this week I wanted to talk about a topic that has a lot of relevance in our firm community. And just as a sort of warning to anyone that might find this topic difficult to hear, we are going to be discussing domestic violence and abuse. But more so, we're going to be talking about it in the context of ways to possibly prevent uh, winding up in a relationship with domestic violence or abuse. So to do that, I invited... Avital Levin, who is a social worker and has been working at the Shalom Task Force as the Director of Education for the past five years. And Avital has a wealth of experience when it comes to domestic violence and abuse. And I wanted to invite her on specifically to talk about how to um, look out for red flags uh, for domestic violence while dating. And I think this is really pertinent, especially in the shittle system, because uh, we tend to have a shortened dating process. And so uh, that could be concerning for possibly missing red flags that might be present because of the short amount of time that people date and the short amount of time that people are engaged. So Avital, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So Avital, uh, first of all, thank you so much for this incredible work that you do in the community. Thank you. It's something that luckily I feel... I feel really fortunate to be a part of every day. And besides for uh, being so heavily involved with work that I think has such a tremendous impact on so many individuals in the community and families uh, and the community at large, I also feel really fortunate to be a part of an organization that functions um, on almost a grassroots level in terms of how many volunteers are involved with the organization. And I want to start by saying that just because I think that when people hear of Shalom Task Force and so many people know of the hotline, they they feel very secure um, reaching out to an organization that is able to provide such phenomenal support. Um, and when people learn that our the Shalom Task Force staff is really quite small, um, there are only about 12 professional staff members, um, but almost 100 very actively involved volunteers who are keeping the hotline going and presenting for the education department that I direct. Um, I think that is actually what makes the organization such a incredible resource for the community. Definitely. And it's incredible that so many people are volunteering. So, you know, like someone like me who grew up in the from community, seeing those ads in the Jewish publications every week, um, you know, it, it's something that if you're fortunate enough not to have direct involvement with domestic abuse, it's like, okay, you just turn the page. But for people who need it and see that the Shalom Task Force is, is available to them, I'm sure it's it's tremendous. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became involved with Shalom Task Force, you know, a little bit about your background, what made you uh, sort of go into this field and, and want to help people who are dealing with domestic violence? Yeah, sure. So I'll start with how I heard first heard about the opening at Shalom Task Force for Director of Education. Um, and that was when someone shared with me the, the job posting while I was finishing my third year working with college students at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And those years were really formative for students in regard to dating and relationships. 
Um, and lots of the students there would speak with me about their relationships and and some of their serious dating experiences. And luckily, I'm a therapist, so I was able to pick up on some of the dynamics um, and provide the correct support informed by a clinical framework. But it really gave me a front row seat to recognizing what what support could look like um, and how people can really get more and more involved in either healthy relationships or um, unhealthy relationships or potentially abusive relationships. And the job at Shalom Task Force was really was a really interesting opportunity for me to be able to delve more deeply into getting to the crux of how to better support people. So when I learned about that position, I felt like it was really the next natural step for me and something that felt really important and really interesting to be able to get there a little bit earlier on in the process, um, try to be more involved in the education for high schools and for seminaries and college students, um, for communities on how, how to really best provide education and support um, to individuals who are looking to form and enter healthy relationships. And I, I myself received a workshop uh, from Shalom Task Force presenters when, when I was in high school. Um, and, you know, by now we've actually, Shalom Task Force has been providing workshops in the community for 20 years. Uh, so for me, remembering that experience, there was, the, there was an impact there. I remember the workshop, it stuck with me. And I felt very interested in really being able to delve more deeply into this kind of work. Wow. So that's great that you, you know, took on this role um, of prevention because like they say, you know, the good old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, but it's so, so true. And then there are so many like unique features in the from community that make it so necessary because you know, we, we come from this like insular community where so many things are taboo, sort of brushed under the rug. You mentioned you had education about this in high school. Personally, I didn't. I went to like a base Yaakov type of high school. This was never, ever spoken about. It was like, oh, it's going to be great. You're going to go to seminary and marry your Kolel husband and everything is going to be so fantastic because he's going to be like, you know, someone who values Torah and has good <laughs> mitos. And like that, that was basically this la la land picture that was always presented to us. And like, personally, I did know some people that had difficult marriages that went through divorce. I didn't know anyone specifically that had like a very abusive marriage. But again, who knows, because it's not something that people typically advertise. Um, but what are some unique features that you found in the from community that are different um, than like, you know, the general population when it comes to abuse and like, you know, tailoring your prevention measures towards the from community versus, you know, general population, let's say. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think I would actually start with talking about the similarities uh, because, you know, we like to say abuse does not discriminate and it really does transcend every community and every group, um, race, religion, socioeconomic status. And I think it's important to note that because when we're when we're defining abuse and when we're really trying to identify the markers of an abusive relationship, there are very specific features that are in place in, in an abusive relationship, um, and that's so that and that really plays out. You know, different 
that might look like a different relationship, different story of how it plays out, but it's the dynamics that are similar. It's the patterns that are similar. Um, it's that power and control that is involved in every abusive relationship. And that's something that is universal. Now, I think I'll go back to kind of what you mentioned about um, the school that you attended and not having a workshop there. And I will say that over the past few years, there's been a tremendous, um, there's been a shift of information being so much more readily available. You know, I think that years ago, when even when Leslie Shalom Task Force was getting started in 1992, the entire world was still uh, much more hush-hush about abuse in general and about saying the word abuse um, and about being willing to, to look at what might be going on behind closed doors and, and inside people's relationships. And things shifted. Um, the O.J. Simpson case definitely had something to do with that. And the whole world started becoming more tuned in and recognizing what was going on. So definitely the in the Orthodox community, uh, we the community took a few years to catch up for sure. But in the past few years, even just I would say in the past five years that I'm able to speak to so thoroughly while actual task force in this position, I've seen so much more um, of willingness to across the board in, like you mentioned, let's say some of the Bisiaku schools, uh, even in, in, in some Hasidish communities, really being willing to, to uh, be honest about dynamics going on in relationships and in, in, in marriages and in homes and actually seeking support. So we are in so many schools now. We are in, across the board, we are in um, very right-wing Bisiaklubs. We're in um, modern Orthodox poet schools. Last year, for example, uh, Shell and Task Force provided educational workso- workshops at 34 high schools uh, to over 2,000 high school students. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and that's just high schools. Um, in terms of community, across the board community workshops, we, we provided workshops last year, just as an example, to about 4,500 individuals received Shalom Task Force educational um, programming. Amazing. Yeah, so the fact that the Jewish community is definitely really open and really welcoming now to this education um, and to addressing this topic, I think really speaks to that shift. Um, And I think that in terms of some of the unique features of abuse in the firm community, I would say, you know, we could definitely talk about some of the, um, what Dr. Cheryl Kramer terms the S's that are very specific to the firm community. So whereas in general, there are, um, there are certain barriers to people accessing services or reaching out to support everywhere in the world. For the firm community, some of the S's that she um, pointed to many years ago when she came up with this was um, fear of shidduchim being affected, the um, shanda factor, um, shalom bias, uh, stigma, secrecy. And I think all of that is really tremendously felt in within the firm community. Interesting. And I think that that applies to so many 
things in the from community, like so many taboo topics, like the fact that people aren't willing as much to share their stories about anything that's sort of, you know, quote unquote, unconventional or different, or maybe a hardship or, you know, something that they're going through. Whereas there are many, uh, like, you know, secular type people who would be much more willing to share within our community. So many more things are swept under the rug, I think, for all of those reasons that you mentioned, right? Probably like Shidduchim being numero uno. But um, yeah, people worry. People worry about how they're going to appear to to the community, and and, and in such a tight knit yeah. community, there is a component that that certainly you know makes sense in a way because everyone knows everyone. So it's not like if you put your story out there, how many people are going to know about it, you know, in the general population. But in our world, it's like everyone, you know, it's only like one degree of separation, right? Exactly. Yeah. So. For sure. Yeah. No, and I think that you know, I think in the past couple of years there has been such a enthusiasm to really join the Me Too movement and share stories and people publicly um, really showcasing their personal experiences and offering that information up, um, which is tremendously validating for for survivors of abuse or really anybody who's struggling. Um, what what we find in the in some of the more from circles is that exactly what you said people aren't necessarily posting their story publicly um, but they are calling the shalom task force hotline Mm -hmm. which offers total anonymity and confidentiality Um, or they are reaching out privately and sending messages requesting um, requesting a workshop um, or they are reaching out to share their story with us um, on staff so yeah there's definitely more still more privacy more um, discretion involved and I think that 100%, you know, with Shaduchim, so much of the emphasis on image and really wanting to ensure a good Shaduch. Um, so that means really making sure, you know, to showcase your family appearing a certain way, um, wanting to keep anything that might be... Um, uncomfortable or might depict your family in like less than stellar um, light kind of secret, right? And and when secrets are festering, then there's so much less of an opportunity for people to get support in abusive relationships. At least the fact that they're willing to reach out and get help is such a major positive step. So, you know, speaking of Shadokim, I, I kind of wanted to approach this topic from the aspect of Shadokim because for I would say probably most of from society, that's the common um, way of dating, of uh, meeting your future marriage partner. Um, and so there's been this trend lately that I've noticed because I have um, you know nieces and nephews that are now in Shidduchim. And it seems to me, and I don't know, I could be wrong, but just from what I've observed, it seems to me that the Shidduch dating period has gotten shorter um, for many, many uh, people. Um, whereas like it used to be normal to date for several months. Um, now it seems like it's only even a few weeks in some cases. And to me, like that makes me raise my eyebrows because I mean, I didn't date super long myself, but the shorter it gets, the less 
well, you know the person, obviously, right? You're not spending a ton of time with them. There's also a lot of Rabbanim that um, advocate parameters like they shouldn't see each other too often because, you know, that they should have time to think in between dates and blah, 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 and all these different things. So if you're not going to be seeing the person that many times and then you're going to get engaged and have a relatively short engagement where there are then further parameters, there are a lot of people that hold that engaged couples shouldn't spend a ton of time together for various reasons. So my concern with that is, you know, does that bring up the possibility of missing potential red flags that, you know, you may otherwise have noticed had you been dating um, a little longer? And like with that, I just wanted to to mention the story that happened to me, which was kind of wild. So when I was um, shidduch dating, I was probably like 20. So I was set up um, with this guy by a friend of mine, someone I went to high school with. And she called me and she said, I have this really great guy for you. I know him um, because he's my boss's friend and, and I've gotten to know him a little bit when he comes into the office. And she mentioned that he's from a little bit more of a Hasidish background, um, but he himself is not really Hasidish. And um, she you know, went on about all of his wonderful qualities and it sounded interesting to me. So I said, sure. I'll go out with him. She told me that he's really smart, which I find to be very attractive. And she mentioned to me that he was um, independently wealthy, like not his parents, but he had like uh, set himself up with a business and, and made a lot of money, whatever. So anyway, um, I went out with this guy and he took me to like really nice restaurants and he was really like nice, like he was a gentleman. He treated me really nicely. Um, but ultimately we realized that we're just not really for each other. I think the different backgrounds really played in, like my family's not from Hasidish background at all. And there were certain like just cultural references that he didn't get. Um, and it just like, you know, highlighted like the disparity between our, our backgrounds and how we were brought up. So we wound up, um, like just calling it quits after three dates. And I called my friend and I told her, um, you know, I, I don't think I want to continue. And she sort of let out this huge sigh of relief. And she said, Oh my gosh, thank God. Because had you said you wanted to continue, I was going to call a Rav. And I said like, why? And so basically then she admitted to me that the reason she set me up with this guy was because he had been stalking her. So wow. she kind of wanted to get him off her back. And the fact that she even uh, admitted, friend, I know, I know, you know, as can be expected, <laughs> we're not super close anymore, but um, I mean, we never really were, but I was very shocked that she even admitted this to me. And I said, like, what happened? She said she, he met her at her, at her office because he was her boss's friend and she happens to be a very attractive, very pretty girl. And I guess he was really into her and he was like calling her nonstop and showing up at her house and saying, can you come outside? I have a gift for you, blah, blah, blah. And so then she wound up setting him up with me as sort of like a distraction. And she was really hoping it wasn't going to go anywhere. But when it went, like when we went for three dates, she started getting really nervous. Anyway, she said, okay, I'm really happy that you broke it off. And I, I, like totally put it behind me. Not long after that, I met my husband. And um, several years later, I'd been married for a little while. And long story short, I wound up finding out, finding out that this guy was holding his wife as an aguna and she claimed that he was extremely abusive. 
And I got really freaked out when I heard this story because when I went out with him, like I mentioned, I thought he was a perfect gentleman. I never saw any signs of, you know, a potential abuser. And I was, I didn't consider myself naive, but I also wasn't like, you know, super informed about this topic. And so it made me realize like, you can really miss things like people can put on a great show. And now people have told me if I ever mentioned that story, like, Oh, wow, you really dodged a bullet. I'm like, no, we just parted ways because we weren't for each other. But I never, never saw any signs of abuse. So that makes me wonder, like, in terms of dating, what, what can people look out for? Like, what are things that that you can miss? And what do you think of this whole concept of the really shortened um, dating process? That story really captures how important it is to be really educated before someone starts dating um, in what to look out for. And also to be able to get the right support during the dating process to really do regular check-ins. Because I think, unfortunately, you know, you have that person who, I mean, again, really, like some friends, you know, you can really just do without. (laughs) Um, But I, I think that, Unfortunately, people are put in situations where at times there are other people out there who are kind of serving as the gatekeepers and they know information about the person and they're not sharing it uh, or they are pushing somebody to continue dating when the individual is telling them that something feels off uh, or it might come from messaging that they're receiving from either the certain leaders in a community or schooling that really makes them think that the most important thing is to just get to that finish line, get to that chuppah, get married, do it while you're young, um, and do whatever you can to get there. And now, of course, we know that's not true because, you know, a lot of people will talk to me about the shut-off crisis, and I'm able to reply back to them, yeah, but, you know, we have a tremendous abuse crisis or divorce crisis. So, you know, we don't want to trade one crisis in for another. We don't want to just um, ignore red flags. We don't want to just get married because the most important thing is to get married, um, right? We want, to, we want to get married if we're entering into healthy relationships. And then we want to really nurture those relationships to continue to be healthy. Um, so... You know, I think that the question of how long of a dating process needs to be in place perhaps might be looked at differently. You know, I think that there are relationships that can be two-year relationships where the relationship escalates later um, and some of the red flags are missed earlier on. Um, Or there could be a two-week relationship that, you know, has that already holds more seriousness and people are have their eyes open and are approaching it with substance and spending time focusing on um, asking the right questions or examining the dynamics that needs to be in place for healthy relationships. So it's really not so much the length of time of the relationship, but really the process of the dating. And I think that when people are really mindful during the dating process of paying attention to what the dynamics look like and most importantly, how they feel, that is really the game changer.
So Avital, just to clarify for the listeners, you know, everyone is aware that there is the potential for abuse in relationships. But I think, you know, unless someone has experienced abuse firsthand, it's hard to, to define what might constitute abuse and what might not. Obviously, someone knows that if they're getting hit or, you know, if there's uh, physical abuse, then that would be an obvious definition. But there's also less obvious definitions of abuse, right? So would you be able to define for the listeners what would be uh, considered abuse? How do you define that? And what are the different types of abuse that might play out in a marriage? Yes. So the way we define domestic abuse or domestic violence or intimate partner violence, which are all interchangeable, different terminology for the same variance, is a pattern of behaviors used by one partner to maintain power and control over another um, and instill fear in an intimate relationship. So, And those are things that we really, really pay attention to and we try to weave into the um, looking out during the dating experience. So really looking for a pattern. And so therefore, like if one thing comes up, that doesn't necessarily mean the person is abusive, right? And again, we want to kind of like be mindful uh, of balance and not being hysterical about things. Um, So we're really looking, it's, it's a pattern of behaviors. The power and control piece is what is predominantly characteristic of an abusive relationship. It is one partner trying to really gain and maintain total control over their partner. And that happens in many different ways. And um, we'll talk about some of the different forms of abuse and and how that plays out. Um, But most importantly, there's a real experience of fear in the relationship. And that really coincides with the tool of um, really trusting your gut. Because when someone is in an abusive relationship, there is that very specific feeling of being afraid, being afraid of what I might say that will upset the other person, being afraid of having an opinion and sharing an opinion, um, being afraid of doing the wrong thing, um, being afraid of what a person's response or abusive tactics might play out in response to the uh, behavior that that's going on right then or what's being afraid of the person's response and that experience very often is described by people who are in abusive relationships as the feeling of walking on eggshells feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to really make sure to keep the peace at all costs you know being afraid of the backlash um And, you know, in dating, because, of course, during the dating period, things are less escalated than when someone is married and um, and, and sharing so much of each other's lives, um, it might be a little more subtle, but there is usually a feeling in place that feels off. Um, and, and that might really coincide with the, the fear that is coming up in an abusive relationship for the person. So that's that's kind of like the general working definition that we use. We we look at a few several different forms of abuse and you know I think one really um, profound shift that has occurred in society over the past few years is being willing to recognize that domestic abuse is not just physical, right? You know, I think that we kind of um, spent a lot of time assuming that 
abuse, an abusive relationship looks like a black eye. An abusive relationship looks like um, somebody who is being hit. An abusive relationship means that someone is crossing that line into the physical realm of violence. Now, we are really giving so much more weight to all of the different forms of abuse now um, and recognizing that the impact of some of these other forms of abuse can be just as damaging on someone's psyche and in some ways perhaps even more so you know like the um, well let's talk about some of the different forms of abuse some of the different forms of abuse are emotional abuse psychological abuse financial sexual abuse digital or technological abuse verbal abuse religious or spiritual abuse and of course, the physical abuse. So getting back to the definition for a minute, in, in a domestic abuse relationship, there is a, um, there's a pattern and there are a lot of different forms of abuse happening at once. You know, it's, it's not linear. Um, but the way that we look at some of these different forms of abuse playing out, physical abuse, of course, is the most obvious form of abuse and um, most universally accepted as, you know, that is not okay. You know, um, and people and societies and communities have all different kinds of responses to, you know, why physical abuse is not okay, but it's definitely the most widely accepted um, agreement on uh, on the form of abuse that's not okay. And, you know, I think a lot about something that happens um, when I was a child. Um, when I was nine years old, I walked into my classroom on a Monday morning to find uh, my classmates talking about what had happened over Shabbos um, when the father of a girl at our school um, in our community had brutally attacked his wife. Um, and he took a crowbar to her head um, and she was in critical condition. She, um, she survived the attack, um, but she was in critical condition. Wow. Um, she, you know, she was in a coma for, um, for several days. And, you know, I, I think about that story a lot when I'm at, at work um, for Shalom Task Force about how in that incident, everyone was talking about what happened. That was a public story. You know, everyone knew what was happening behind those closed doors. And the family was rallied around, you know, they, they received support. And, you know, I think about that wife and I think about that 11 year old daughter walked into her parents' room to find her mother lying unconscious. Uh, I think about the younger children at home, one who was a 10-month-old baby. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think about that husband who just perpetrated this gruesome act of violence on a woman who he was married to for 13 years. And I think about that story, of course, because the severity of it and because it happened when I was nine and that left, you know, that left a real impression that left an impact. But I also think about that sharp contrast between that story and so many of the stories that we work with every single day that are totally secret, that are totally contained, um, where nobody knows what's going on behind closed doors, um, where perhaps the children in those homes are being tasked to keep terrible secrets, um, really frightening, just gruesome details of a parent's marriage and the secrecy and the shame, just that really internalized sense of needing to hold a secret is so much more common 
right? You know, like the, um, there are so many more of those stories than of the story that, about, you know, of that girl whom, whom I grew up with in my community. Um, so, you know, I think that kind of, that really speaks to just physical abuse, getting the most airtime, um, but so many of the other forms of abuse needing to be recognized as well. And we could talk about, you know, some of the different red flags of abuse and how they come up and maybe I'll share some examples. Sure. That would be great. So when we think about some of the different red flags that point, that could point to an abusive relationship, we talk about some controlling behaviors. We talk about temper as absolutely a red flag. You know, and, and that could look like the person who seems to be getting really upset when uh, people are making noise or when things don't go as planned um, or when a partner expresses an opinion that they don't agree with. And another red flag could look like not having a voice uh, and finding that the opinions um, or the preferences that one is expressing are totally not respected. So like what would be some, you know, practical tips, say, for someone who's dating um, and wants to know what to look out for? So I'll, I'll start by saying that many calls to our hotline or, or even just in general um, speaking with individuals who have already, who are in already advanced marriages that are abusive, when they reflect back on the dating process, will very, most of the time will say, that the red flags were there. Uh, they just didn't necessarily know how to verbalize something they were feeling or they had a feeling, but they couldn't really put their finger on it. Uh, but most of the red flags were there, actually. And I think that that actually gives a lot of hope because that tells us that with enough ability to look out for the red flags and to really be able to um, get in touch with the feelings that most often come up with those red flags, that does give opportunity for earlier awareness, um, earlier detection and intervention and support. So some of the red flags that we look out for are very often there's, there could feel like this rushed whirlwind, whirlwind dating process um, where there, it seems like there's a lot of excitement and um, real interest early on in the relationship. Um, and that might look like somebody getting very serious quickly and being very charming and very expressive about how interested they are in their partner. Um, and you'll notice I'm, I'm using the word partner and, and I think it's important to point out that, you know, of course, statistically women more often are victims of abuse. We would say, um, one in four women are victims of domestic violence, uh, over the course of their lifetime and something like one in seven men. Um, but of course it does, it affects, you know, both genders. So I, I do want to point that out at this time. Uh, but when we, when we talk about some of the experiences that somebody has during the red, during the dating process, so getting back to the potential red flags, the excitement and, and serious interest and almost like what your friend experienced as stalking, um, is something that is definitely a red flag that points to abuse. Um, some of the stalking behaviors include, like what you had mentioned, um, the, the excessive calling. It could be texting a million times and, and not 
taking no for an answer um, or not even giving the other partner enough space to respond when it works for them. And then that, that might look like explaining that as, you know, I just, I really, really like you and I want to talk to you. And I just, I, I, I was so upset when I couldn't reach you. And that is something that can feel really great for someone, which, which kind of points to some of the confusion that people feel um, when they're in a relationship that might be abusive because it's not all bad, right? You know, like there's, there is something that's really, that could feel enticing for the person and um, people are, are not black and white. There's so much gray. So that profile of the person who is super interested and running after the other person and might be really charming about it is something that we point to as really not being able to take space in a relationship. And the way that that plays out is very often when one person feels like their space is being crowded and they're almost unable to communicate that. You know, and if they do communicate that, perhaps the other person doesn't even respect that request for space and it will be kind of blown off. It will be responded to with, you know, with a compliment or with something that makes the other person feel like, you know what, maybe this actually is a really good thing. So, you know, that's the idea of taking space and, and how important that is in a relationship. And if that's something that's feeling compromised, then that really needs to be examined. So it sounds like the personality you're describing comes across as very intense. Is that really fair to say or not necessarily? So, so that is one of the, um, often one of the characteristics of, of a profile. At the same time, there isn't really one specific personality, so to speak, uh, because, you know, I could, I could share cases or stories of, of abusive partners where the profile is someone who is seems really um, more on the quiet side, more low key, but there could be some of the red flags going on there might look like someone who is extremely rigid and controlling and really expects their partner to fully respect whatever their voice and their preferences are in the relationship. So I think that kind of shows us the, it's more about um, some of the core dynamics that, that are going on in an abusive relationship. And I think we should define that. Um, but it's not really any specific personality. It's just we, we don't exactly know um, who the personality of this person is, but we are able to look at some of the behaviors and some of the dynamics that take place in those relationships. Got it. So the the sort of not wanting to give space is a big red flag, right? Um, yes. Do you have any, any others that are kind of more uh, suspect when you see them across the board? For sure, yeah. So we talk about, we mentioned um, the controlling dynamic, uh, that real rigidity and being controlling and being possessive, like wanting things a certain way, um, and almost expecting to have full autonomy or full agency um, over the partner and making decisions almost unilaterally. So for example, there was someone who reached out and spoke with me about a relationship that they were in that when they were dating person always made the decisions, you know, and somehow, and, and it didn't, it didn't seem over at first. Um, but somehow it just happened that every single date, 
that partner was the one making the decision of where they were going, what they were doing on the date, how they would spend the time. And when this person tried to, at one point, express that she wanted to try something different, you know, she was really excited about going to this other place. His response was, trust me, you're going to love this. I'm telling you, I know you think that you want to go there, but trust me, you're going to like this better. This is going to be so great. And, you know, she kind of went along with that and she didn't really think it was worth um, creating any kind of tension, right? Because I think like with dating, one of the number one fears that people have is of making something awkward. Right. Right, Rebecca? Sure. Have you experienced that? Of course. Awkwardness is like the scariest thing ever, right? You also don't um, want to come across as like someone who's very like needy or rigid yourself. So you'll see you're more likely to compromise during the dating period. You know, sure, we'll go along exactly. with it. I'll be chilled, you know. Exactly. Yeah, like really wanting to put your best foot forward. And, um, you know, I don't want to come across as exactly like being too opinionated. I want to be, I want to, I want to seem so laid back. I want this person to like me. What if I stir the pot and then they don't want to go out with me again, but you know, they have so much going on and everybody just told me why this, you know, this person is God's gift. So of course I would be so lucky to end up with them. So really being afraid of, um, in any way experiencing conflict, um, or awkwardness or tension. Now, the reason that that's such a loss of opportunity in dating is because conflict is almost the number one tool that we can use um, and the experience that we can point to that really helps us to assess the health of a relationship. And that's something that we really encourage people to explore. Um, So that means that more so than when everybody is having a great time and everything is going right, you know, because um, when things are going right, um, that, that feels good, right? Like everybody feels good. Everybody feels comfortable. We're on the same page. It's going great. Um, when something doesn't go right, you know, when someone's running, running a little late, uh, when the food comes whole to the table, when people make plans, but they don't go as planned. Um, when somebody tries reaching the other person, but they don't call back right away. Um, when someone says something that in some way, could really offend the other person or something they don't even want to hear or it's an opinion that they don't agree with, that conflict coming up, which we'll just call conflict, even though, you know, I I sometimes find that people, when we say conflict, especially with students, they think that that means like a big screaming match. And that's not what I'm talking about. You know, when we talk about conflict, we're just talking about any kinds of little opportunity for discomfort to be felt. Mm -hmm. So I think that people... Um, then have a tremendous opportunity to see how the person reacts during that conflict situation. And that tells them a tremendous amount. Um, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it, I guess it would be reflective of how this person will deal with conflict later on in life, which every single marriage, no matter how great, always has some degree of conflict. So that's like super important. And I, I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I've heard also, um, watching how the person is like in traffic or how they respond to other drivers or like, you know, if they get cut off, how they um, respond to the other drivers on the road. Cause that, you know, could be a sense of conflict and can show their tolerance to other people. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I really, I like to really balance that with, with um, not taking anything too literally in terms of um, even the list of red flags or too literally in terms of like different examples or scenarios or cases um, and really just paying 
most attention to how do I feel, you know, that trust your gut feeling that we encourage everyone to pay attention to when dating. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, always telling people every time we go out and give a workshop and, and give a lecture or training, um, teaching people how, how to ask themselves that question of, you know, how does this make me feel? Um, and cause something might not even be so glaring or so obvious, but if something feels off, that is something that we need to pay attention to and definitely need to explore and to look at. And maybe we'll find out, you know, that, that everything was okay. And maybe I, I, you know, the person feels nervous at the time because they're new to dating or maybe the person feels um, uncomfortable about something the other person expressed, but there's good reason for how that could be looked at differently, but really paying attention to how the person really feels and not taking anything too literally. Um, I remember at some point someone who, uh, who I was uh, at a meal with socially heard that I worked for Shalom Task Force and, and he, he said, Oh, no way. You know, I've been dying to share this story with someone at Shalom Task Force for years. And you know, you're my person now. And he shared that when he was dating, he uh, went out with a girl and, and things were really going well. They went out a few times and she was interested and he was interested. And, you know, the shotgun had just really positive things to say all around. And then they went on a date where he was uh, driving. And when they were approaching a yellow light, he started driving really slowly and slowed down um, and came to a full stop when it was still yellow um, before the light had even turned red. And she looked over at him and said, wow, do you always stop at a yellow light? Like, that's so funny. And he said, oh, no, not at all. I mean, I'm usually actually a really fast driver, and I would totally just zoom through the yellow light. I definitely wouldn't stop. But, you know, since I'm on a date with you, I decided to uh, you know, be a little more careful and be on my best behavior and, and stop for a yellow. And she told the Shafa that night that that's a red flag, changing behavior. She learned in the Shalom Task Force workshop. <laughs> that, that means definitely don't go out with the person again um, and totally just break it off. And, you know, he was like, could you believe that? Like, no way. I'm the nicest guy. I treat my wife so well. And, you know, his wife was there and she was nodding along. Um, and you know, when I heard that I was kind of cringing because like, we don't want people to miss the point, right? Like, 100%. Like, obviously we want to educate people. We want to bring, we want to raise awareness. We want to bring attention to these issues and we want to share stories and examples and cases, but obviously like, the Shalom Task Force presenter is not on the date with you. Um, you know, we want people to kind of go out with eyes open and educated, but most importantly, really being able to tune into that internal experience. Um, because like I, you know, like I, I always say to the presenters that I uh, train and supervise, we don't, we don't expect people to go into dating in this kind of um, checklist-like way. You know, it's not like we're trying to send people on a date with a checklist and it's like, check, 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 red flag, never going out with that person again, right? Like, we don't need people to be kind of like these passive observers on dates. We want people to really be active participants. And being an active participant means um, really paying attention fully to how you feel on the dates. Um, if If someone says something that, you have questions about using your voice to respond to that and to maybe ask the other person about that question. Um, for sure, if there are red flags that seem like ones that 
don't need to be explored further, of course, that is that that can be totally healthy as well. But definitely not to approach anything in, um, you know, in too concrete of a way, really being able to um, be fully tuned in to some of the deeper deeper dynamics that are going on in relationships. So would you say like awareness balanced with your, your intuition? Yes, absolutely. And sometimes when we talk about intuition, that can feel confusing or that can feel overwhelming as well, you know, because like you mentioned earlier, there is so much messaging that we all receive from a very young age um, about what it's going to be like when we grow up and what it's gonna look like when we're dating, and what having a, um, a beautiful home with Shalom Bias is, and perhaps whose job it is to really maintain the Shalom Bias. And we just, we, we're bombarded with so many messages that can, in some ways, create this um, almost checklist framework of how we do approach dating. And that can feel confusing to have to then also be tasked with saying, yeah, but just, you know, use your intuition, trust your gut, you know, because some people are very self-aware and they're very tuned into their feelings um, and they're really able to have a handle on how they're feeling. And for some people that doesn't really come naturally. Um, so that's where real, real good support and uh, mentoring during dating is, can be the game changer. You know, that, that is incredibly important. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that we could use all different kinds of analogies and examples of how, you know, when somebody is learning how to do something or somebody is learning um, about a topic, we don't just throw them in and expect them to get it all right, right away. You know, there's a tremendous amount of um, education that can go into that, right? And with marriage, I mean, that responsibility to another person and the commitment um, and then at some point perhaps adding children to the mix you know, that's a tremendous amount of responsibility and people are, we're just thrown into that often. Um, but there are so many opportunities to at least try to educate ourselves a bit more to be more educated, um, on what a healthy relationship needs, what abuse looks like, um, what unhealthy might feel like. Um, and you know, there, there are so many resources available to people. Uh, another red flag that, that comes up a lot is being really possessive, really being jealous. And, you know, that one can be confusing because that can feel good. When we think about, is there any room for jealousy in a relationship? Of course, right? You know, if someone is in a committed relationship and they feel jealous of the looks that their partner is getting from someone else at the table, um, at a Shabbos table, and that feels concerning to them where they think that a person is perhaps very interested in their partner and they feel a little jealous that could be like just very natural healthy good jealousy that has a place in relationship in really in healthy relationships um so you know of course it's not that some of these features never have a place um but if there's a jealousy that is coming up in the dating process where someone feels really jealous of how much time their partner spends with their family. If, if that's something that makes a person feel really jealous um, and almost possessive, that it is not acceptable for someone else to ever 
you know, shower you with any attention? Does that mean that I'm threatened, right? Because I can't tolerate that perhaps um, somebody else also really uh, likes you or is interested in you. So that's something that could point to a concern of kind of the control and the possessiveness and the jealousy that could really start to become very unhealthy. Um, and that could look like the incessant checking of one's messages, calling somebody all the time, getting really defensive or upset if another person is unable to be available to them when they want it. Uh, I'm thinking of someone who went to um, her family's party and the guy who she was dating called her about 25 times while she was at the party and she didn't have her phone with her and, you know, it took her a couple of hours to get back to the person. And he was really upset and he was really hurt and he kind of gave her the silent treatment for the, for the whole um, rest of the evening and then the next day as well. And she was really shocked and she really didn't understand what had happened. And, you know, she had been apologetic on the phone that she, her phone was um, away from her. It wasn't with her and she wasn't able to call back right away. Um, but the person's response the next day when he finally did get back to her was that, you know, I was just so hurt and I just, I care about you so much. And I just, I feel like I really can't go a few hours without talking to you, you know, but it's really just because I'm so crazy about you and that might feel good but that can really point to a real red flag in terms of that response like that that intensity of the response so it was sort of like you know the abuse was sort of hidden by this uh pretending to be really caring and thoughtful yeah you know and it's not always so sometimes it's confusing to people where like when we when we describe the abusive um person's tendencies or behaviors sometimes it could seem really mindful like really strategic and mindful and and as if it's all like based on like planning and cunning and all that but of course you know someone who is behaving that way um may themselves be out of control with their own behaviors and feelings um but the way that that impacts their partner is what we are really concerned with like that is what we want to pay attention to you know we want to really make sure that um someone who is the recipient of that is really paying attention to that um to that behavior and seeking support when needed got it so some of the other forms of abuse that i mentioned are uh, the emotional and psychological, and that looks like emotional is, I, I like to describe it as really um, playing with someone's feelings, and the psychological is really could be playing mind games. Uh, so, you know, that, that could really come across as real lack of respect for another person, um, really not being able to give another person a, a, a sense of um, agency in the relationship, and can look like um, playing, for example, I know someone who would hide their um, partner's keys every time they went away for Shabbos, and this was like early on in their marriage. They were, they were, they were at someone's house for Shabbos, and it was time to leave, and this partner would, would hide their partner's keys to gaslight the person 
and to play those kind of mind games, that psychological, emotional abuse of making them think that they're just crazy, they're always losing things. And the person would then turn to everyone else there and say, yeah, you know, it happens a lot. Um, yeah, you know, they always, she just always loses her keys in this really just deeply wounding way um, that left the other person just feeling so frazzled and, and kind of chiseled away at their, um, their sense of their, their self-concept and, and, and sense of confidence. Um, and, um, and that was something that was tremendously damaging and it was so subtle and so nuanced. You know, when I think about financial abuse, for example, I think about the, the person I spoke with who shared that he was really concerned about his friend who was in a marriage where his wife was um, working and he was learning full time. Um, and the wife and together with her parents were the ones who were really uh, financially supporting that marriage. And his friend would share with him that his wife just held a tremendous amount of control in the relationship and used tactics to make him feel really little and really, you know, really small and really afraid about how he could behave in the relationship and whether he could have a voice. And that would look like really dictating um, almost to the, to the dollar, almost to the cent, what he could spend and continuously throwing back in his face. Well, you know, I don't, I really don't think you should be buying yourself coffee because I'm the one supporting you. You know, me and my parents, we're the ones supporting you while she would spend really just indulgent amounts of money on things for herself. And, you know, and of course it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't just about the money piece. It was about the control. Um, and really being able to have almost this like perfect storm of, of tactics that she can use holding so much control financially, um, to behave in very abusive ways to her partner. Um, and, and I think that kind of really illustrates for us what that could look like. Mm -hmm. Um, when we think about religious or spiritual abuse, that could look like really dictating to someone how they can behave religiously. And if in any way that veers from what this partner thinks is appropriate, um, responding in ways that are extremely abusive. You know, we talk about verbal abuse that could look like name calling that could look like using words to really belittle someone to put them down. Um, that could look like swearing at the person cursing at them. And, you know, the religious spiritual area of abuse could also be really subtle and nuanced and it could look like playing mind games about, you know, no, my ref told me that this is okay. When we think about, let's say, spiritual, uh, sexual abuse, for example, that could look like saying, you know, my ref, you just don't realize, but you could already go to the mikvah um, on, you know, on day five and you don't even have to wait the other days because, you know, there's this a loophole, there's a kula, you just, you don't learn this, you're not really learned in Gemara, but my Rev and I were talking about it, and, and you just trust me, like, I know, and, and that could be kind of utilizing these abusive tactics to really uh, compromise someone's um, religious or spiritual identity, or to, um, to really push someone with boundaries another way that they're, that they're not comfortable with to let's say take on areas of, um, spirituality or religion that are really not comfortable for them and to do it in a way that feels like it 
it is, you know, necessary and that if they're not willing to do that, there's something really wrong with them um, and using the fear tactics to make that happen. Um, and then when we think about, again, talking about sexual abuse, people are sometimes shocked to find out that sexual abuse is included in marriage. When we go into workshops, I really um, encourage all presenters and we all teach everyone to define sexual abuse as this could, it doesn't matter what kind of background you come from um, or what you may have ever done in your past. And this could be during dating, during engagement, um, or even during marriage, but nobody is ever allowed to touch you in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, and marital rape is something that occurs in Orthodox Jewish marriages, and that's something that's some, some, sometimes surprising to people. We get many calls um, on the Shalom Task Force hotline where an individual is sharing a, a terrifying story of being raped by their spouse. And, you know, that's, that's, of course, something that's really important to bring awareness to in the community. So say like you have, you know, I'll just use an example of a girl since that's the majority. She's going out with this guy. Something doesn't feel right, whether her intuition or signs she's picking up on. Um, but she's not sure, you know, it's not as, as cut and dry as, oh, this definitely feels wrong. I'm out. So at that point, what would be the recommendation for, uh, someone who's actually in the process of dating someone and they have questions or they're really unsure what to do? What would you recommend as the next step, practically speaking? If a person is comfortable um, calling the Shalom Task Force hotline, so of course that is a really, I would say, readily available first step. It's a purely confidential anonymous hotline. So if the person is at the stage of really pre-contemplation about what does this relationship even feel like? What are these feelings coming up for me? Is that are these red flags? Is this okay? And they're still kind of in that questioning phase and they're not sure yet. Calling the Shalom Task Force hotline is free um, and confidential. So it's able to kind of give them really well guided help on identifying some of what is coming up for them. That then could look like the person choosing to um, receive a referral for a therapist um, or another kind of resource that they're interested in, um, and and that and then go from there. For someone who or perhaps don't feel comfortable calling the Shalom Task Force hotline, there are a lot of um, great people available to speak with, and I think it really is about identifying who the right mentor is. Um, and that's something we speak about a lot because I would say first and foremost is knowing how to get the correct advice um, and knowing who will be able to provide that. And sometimes people who have someone in their life who they really respect and they love, often they will often assume that that person is the right mentor. And that's not necessarily true. Um, right, and that and that could be sometimes a family member, um, could be someone you really love, and and they love you so much, and they care about you, um, and perhaps though when you're sharing information about dating, they might feel like their instinct is to be so protective, um, or perhaps their anxiety gets in the way of being able to totally be able to hear you um, in that moment. 
and then you're you're not able to share the information in the way that would be most helpful for you to share at that time um, or someone that you let's say respect a lot spoken with people who men who are dating and have relationships with their rebellion or women who are dating and have relationships perhaps with a seminary teacher um, whom they respect a tremendous amount and now if their dating is not is is going in a way where that Rebbe or that seminary teacher um, might be, perhaps they might think that that person would be disappointed to hear about. It could be that this is areas of halacha that are being violated. So now that person won't really share the full picture with this really beloved, respected mentor in their life. So that might not be the right mentor for them during the dating period, because certainly when someone is dating, they want to be able to share all the information, right? You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, everything, right? That way the person who is supporting them is able to really look at patterns, to be able to kind of connect the dots, to be to be able to mirror back and offer support um, in a way where they have the full picture. So, you know, the, the idea of mentor, having someone who is the right mentor, um, that's really important. Of course, as a therapist, I feel that there's a tremendous value to speaking to a therapist. Uh, and I think more and more people are actually looking to therapy during dating, not even um, because there's a problem, almost as a proactive approach to realizing that dating will hold a lot of intensity for anyone who's dating. And that kind of already being in the framework with a therapist, with a trained professional who is able to be in that space with the person at that time and really contract with them on what it will look like to reflect back after dates, to kind of get to gain self-awareness, to be able to learn more about what feels good in a relationship um, and when dating someone and then go back to the chopping block if that relationship doesn't work out and now they're starting another relationship. Um, that's a framework that for more and more people now is feeling really positive uh, to be able to utilize in dating. Yeah, so I guess the mentorship, the therapy, that would be helpful. The hotline, those those are all really helpful resources that I would think to. And then I think when we talk about Jewish communal leaders, really knowing who kind of gets it. And there are an incredible amount of Jewish leaders who do receive wonderful training who or who just really through their own experience are able to possess incredible skills of how to support people with um, making healthy choices and being able to provide really really positive really healthy support and I think that leaders who are very open to getting trained in different areas you know like I know leaders who who really invest um, in being trained on what supporting someone through addiction looks like because they are working with so many community members who might be experiencing addiction. For leaders who really reach out and request the Shalom Task Force trainings um, that we give on how to best recognize abusive relationship dynamics and to how to best support people towards seeking out and sustaining healthy relationships. So I think there are a tremendous amount of leaders out there who are very open to that and recognize the incredible responsibility of being there for community members with real skill and really just real accountability for investing in the health of people's 
relationships, families, and the community at large. So, you know, I think that it's, it is so important to be able to identify who those leaders are and that if there are leaders that, you know, perhaps seem less um, open, perhaps those are not the right leaders to be reaching out to during the dating process. Wow. So, yeah, you've given so much good information, um, you know, in terms of recognizing the signs, in terms of, you know, who to reach out to and what to do and, you know, to take the next steps if those signs are present. Um, and it sounds like also for anyone who's listening who may need it, Shalom Task Force is an amazing resource and seems like a pretty obvious starting point. So I was not aware that you offer resources for the dating period as well. I assumed it was just for relationships. So I think that's really, really important for people to know um, that it's really any stage of the relationship that that uh, you guys are available to offer that um, advice and referrals. So that's fabulous. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if it were up to me, we would have a full curriculum that we're already rolling out in kindergarten and elementary school, you know, because it's never too early to start um, thinking about healthy relationships. And, you know, the same way we could think about what does it feel like when the the, um, the mean girl in third grade um, tells you one day that you're her best friend and then the next day um, ignores you and embarrasses you in front of other people like how does that feel how does it feel to you know to be disrespected in that way and right some of those similar kind of like abusive dynamics could be happening very very early on and of course as a community if we could be teaching so early um how to really recognize and form and sustain healthy relations that would be ideal and that sounds like the prevention stage which of course is so valuable because if you can prevent someone from entering into an unhealthy relationship that's key Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think I want to kind of just wrap up with a story uh, to frame this whole dating stage. And, and I hope it I hope this is a hopeful message. My husband and I had a friend who was sharing with us a lot about his dating um, when he was dating. And we were kind of really trying to be there for him as a support. And he shared about some of the really positive dating experiences that he was going through and, and some of the not so positive ones and, you know, some of the, um, highlights and, and some of the real, um, sources of pain that he was experiencing, which again, is just so, so common for anybody who, who's, who's going through a date, the dating stage. And he shared that when he had dated someone for a long time, that's when like only Simchas, remember that Rebecca? Sure. Simchas was, the thing sure, sure. so <laughs> he shared that you know he would look at all these happy pictures of people posting things on only simchas and everybody would be like mazel tov yay we're so excited for you so happy for you you did it man and great you know really like congratulations and everyone really showing so much support and like you you know you got there um and he said i want to create a website where people can post their breakup experiences and a picture of like, I want a picture of myself up there crying and everyone is like, Oh, you know, you seem so great together, but don't worry, you'll find someone else. Or, you know, you worked so hard to try to make it happen, but don't worry, better luck next time. And, you know, just hang in there, buddy. You'll be okay. And he's like, you know, because dating someone takes a tremendous amount of work and there's so much energy that goes into it and there is so much 
um, growth that can happen and, and so much self-awareness. And like, I want people to really celebrate that. So I'm going to create that website called Almost Simchat. <laughs> Almost um, Simchat. And, and like, you know, really great idea. I guess it never took off. But, um, you know, I think really it, it that kind of just captures that sense of how as a community, as a society, we really do want to focus so much more on the process of dating, not just the product, um, not just about getting to the finish line, um, not just about trying to um, self-promote or package ourselves or focus so much on image um, and fall into some of the traps of Shudachim um, where, you know, it's just about getting engaged and getting married. We really, really want to focus on the process of everything that's going on um, that will hopefully be able to lead to just healthier, um, more loving, more respectful, um, and, and just more stronger marriages for, for everyone. Wow, that's a really nice blessing. And it sounds like, you know, you're definitely super instrumental in helping people get there. So that's, you know, that's incredible. And it must be so wonderful to, you know, while you probably at work get, bombarded with a lot of sad stories and you know it's hard I'm sure on many days at the same time you you know you're having a real active role in helping people through these terrible situations which is incredible so wow so Avital I just really want to thank you and Shalom Task Force and also just point out again to our listeners that so so many of of the people part of the task force are volunteers which is incredible um, and it sounds like, you know, you're doing amazing work. Like I mentioned earlier, I grew up, you know, reading Jewish publications and seeing that ad, but, um, you know, I've never actually delved deeper into Shalom Task Force till now and, um, super, super impressed and grateful for the service to the community. So, um, I want to say thank you to the whole Shalom Task Force and thank you to you, Avital, and thank you so, so much for joining me and giving me your time, which I know is so valuable. Um, but thank you for being here. I think it's a really, really important topic for people to hear and, you know, gain some insight into. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. And of course I encourage everyone who is either, um, looking to start dating and wants to learn more going into that process or already dating, um, or for anybody supporting someone who's dating or in any kind of relationship that needs support to, of course, reach out to the Shalom Task Force hotline. Uh, the number is 888-883-2323. It's anonymous, confidential. You can check out the Shalom Task Force website. Um, there are a lot of educational resources that we put up there. Um, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, a lot of content there as well, and kind of to keep up with what are some of the upcoming programs. And I really just want to thank you so much, Rebecca, for having me. And you know, the truth is there are so many opportunities for um, the community to learn more about healthy relationships and about being supported, but not everyone wants to create that space or offer that platform. And I really, I, I feel very grateful to you for including this important topic um, in your podcast. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, if it helps even one person, that would be well, well worth it. So again, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Same to you. Take care.